Chapter One of Opening a Chestnut Burr by Edward P. Rowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One A Hero But Not Heroic. Shall I ever be strong in mind or body again? said Walter Gregory with irritation as he entered a crowded Broadway omnibus. The person thus querying so despairingly with himself was a man not far from thirty years of age but the lines of care were furrowed so deeply on his handsome face that dismal lowering morning the first of october that he seemed much older having wedged himself in between two burly forms that suggested thrift downtown and good cheer on the avenue he appears meagre and shrunken in contrast he is tall and thin his face white and drawn instead of being ruddy with health's rich warm blood there is scarcely anything remaining to remind one of the period of youth so recently vanished neither is there dignity nor the consciousness of strength that should come with maturer years his heavy light-colored mustache and pallid face gave him the aspect of a blasé man of the world who had exhausted himself and life at an age when wisely directed manhood should be just entering on its richest pleasures and such an opinion of him with some hopeful exceptions and indications would be correct the expression of irritation and self-disgust still remaining on his face as the stage rumbles downtown is a hopeful sign. His soul at least is not surrounded by a Chinese wall of conceit. However perverted his nature may be, it is not a shallow one, and he evidently has a painful sense of the wrongs committed against it. Though his square jaw and the curve of his lip indicate firmness, one could not look upon his contracted brow and half-despairing expression as he sits oblivious of all surroundings without thinking of a ship drifting helplessly and in distress there are encouraging possibilities in the fact that from those windows of the soul his eyes a troubled rather than an evil spirit looks out a close observer would see at a glance that he was not a good man but he might also note that he was not content with being a bad one there was little of the rigid pride and sinister hardness or the conceit often seen on the faces of men of the world who have spent years in spoiling their manhood and the sensual phase of coarse dissipation was quite wanting you will find in artificial metropolitan society many men so emasculated that they are quite vain of being blasé fools that with conscious superiority smile disdainfully at those still possessing simple wholesome tastes for things which they, in their indescribable accent, characterize as a bore. But Walter Gregory looked like one who had early found the dregs of evil life very bitter, and his face was like that of nature when smitten with untimely frosts. He reached his office at last, and wearily sat down to the routine work at his desk, instead of the intent and interested look with which a young and healthy man would naturally enter on his business he showed rather a dogged resolution to work whether he felt like it or not and with harsh disregard of his physical weakness the world will never cease witnessing the wrongs that men commit against each other but perhaps if the wrongs and cruelties that people inflict on themselves should be summed up the painful aggregate would be much larger as gregory sat bending over his writing rather from weakness than from a stooping habit his senior partner came in and was evidently struck by the appearance of feebleness on the part of the young man the unpleasant impression haunted him for having looked over his letters he came out of his private office and again glanced uneasily at the colorless face which gave evidence that only sheer force of will was spurring a failing hand and brain to their tasks 
At last Mr. Burnett came and laid his hand on his junior partner's shoulder, saying kindly, "'Come, Gregory, drop your work. You are ill. The strain upon you has been too long and severe. The worst is over now, and we are going to pull through better than I expected. Don't take the matter so bitterly to heart. I admit myself that the operation promised well at first. You were misled, and so were we all, by downright deception. That the swindle was imposed on us through you was more your misfortune than your fault.' and it will make you a keener business man in the future. You have worked like a galley-slave all summer to retrieve matters, and have taken no vacation at all. You must take one now immediately, or you will break down altogether. Go off to the woods, fish, hunt, follow your fancies, and the bracing October air will make a new man of you. I thank you very much, Gregory began. I suppose I do need rest. In a few days, however, I can leave better." no interrupted mr burnet with hearty emphasis drop everything as soon as you finish that letter be off don't show your face here again till november i thank you for your interest in me said gregory rising indeed i believe it would be good economy for if i don't feel better soon i shall be of no use here or anywhere else that's it said old mr burnet kindly sick and blue they go together now be off to the woods and send me some game i won't inquire too sharply whether you brought it down with lead or silver gregory soon left the office and made his arrangements to start on his trip early the next morning his purpose was to make a brief visit to the home of his boyhood and then to go wherever a vagrant fancy might lead the ancestral place was no longer in his family though he was spared the pain of seeing it in the hands of strangers it had been purchased a few years since by an old and very dear friend of his deceased father a gentleman named walton it had so happened that Gregory had rarely met his father's friend, who had been engaged in business at the West, and of his family he knew little more than that there were two daughters, one who had married a southern gentleman, and the other much younger living with her father. Gregory had been much abroad as the European agent of his house, and it was during such absence that Mr. Walton had retired from business and purchased the old Gregory homestead. The young man felt sure, however, that though a comparative stranger himself, he would, for his father's sake, be a welcome visitor at the home of his childhood. At any rate, he determined to test the matter, for the moment he found himself at liberty, he felt a strange and eager longing to revisit the scenes of the happiest portion of his life. He had meant to pay such a visit in the previous spring, soon after his arrival from Europe. When his elation at being made partner in the house, which he so long had served as clerk, reached almost the point of happiness. Among those who had welcomed him back was a man a little older than himself, who in his absence had become known as a successful operator in Wall Street. They had been intimate before Gregory went abroad, and the friendship was renewed at once. Gregory prided himself on his knowledge of the world, and was not by nature inclined to trust hastily and yet he did place implicit confidence in Mr. Hunting, regarding him as a better man than himself. Hunting was an active member of a church, and his name figured on several charities, while Gregory had almost ceased to attend any place of worship, and spent his money selfishly upon himself, or foolishly upon others, giving only as prompted by impulse. Indeed, his friend had occasionally ventured to remonstrate with him against his tendencies to dissipation, saying that a young man of his prospects should not damage them for the sake of passing gratification. Gregory felt the force of these words, for he was exceedingly ambitious, and bent upon accumulating wealth, and at the same time making a brilliant figure in business circles. In addition to the ordinary motives which would naturally lead him to desire such success, 
He was incited by a secret one more powerful than all the others combined. Before going abroad, when but a clerk, he had been the favored suitor of a beautiful and accomplished girl. Indeed, the understanding between them almost amounted to an engagement, and he reveled in a passionate romantic attachment at an age when the blood is hot, the heart enthusiastic, and when not a particle of worldly cynicism and adverse experience had taught him to moderate his rose-hued anticipations. She seemed the embodiment of goodness, as well as beauty and grace, for did she not repress his tendencies to be a little fast? Did she not, with more than sisterly solicitude, counsel him to shun certain florid youth, whose premature blossoming indicated that they might early run to seed? And did he not, in consequence, cut Guy Bonner, the jolliest fellow he had ever known? Indeed, more than all, had she not ventured to talk religion to him, so that for a time he had regained himself as in a very hopeful frame of mind, and had been inclined to take a mission class in the same school with herself? How lovely and angelic she had once appeared, stooping in elegant costume from her social height to the little ragamuffins of the street that sat gaping around her, as he gazed adoringly while waiting to be her resort home his young heart had swelled with the impulse to be good and noble also but one day she caused him to drop out of his roseate clouds with much sweetness and resignation and with appropriate sighs she had said that it was her painful duty to tell him that their intimacy must cease that she had received an offer from mr grob and that her parents and indeed all her friends had urged her to accept him she had been led to feel that with their riper experience and knowledge of life knew what was best for her and therefore she had yielded to their wishes and accepted the offer she was beginning to add in a sentimental tone that had she only followed the impulses of her heart when gregory at first too stunned and bewildered to speak recovered his senses and interrupted with please don't speak of your heart miss bentley why mention so small a matter go on with your little transaction by all means I am a business man myself, and can readily understand your motives. And he turned on his heel and strode from the room, leaving Miss Bentley ill at ease. The young man's first expression of having received, as it were, a staggering blow, and then his bitter satire, made an impression on her cotton and wool nature, and for a time her proceedings with Mr. Grob did not wear the aspect in which they had been presented by her friends but her little world so confidently and continually reiterated the statement that she was making a splendid match that her qualms vanished and she felt that what all asserted must be true and so entered on the gorgeous preparations as if the wedding were all and the man nothing it is the custom to satirize or bitterly denounce such girls but perhaps they are rather to be pitied they are the natural products of artificial society wherein wealth show and the social eminence which is based on dress and establishment are held out as the prizes of a woman's existence. The only wonder is that so much heart and truth assert themselves among those who all their life have seen wealth practically worshipped, and worth, ungilded, generally ignored. From ultra-fashionable circles a girl is often seen developing into the noblest womanhood, while narrow, mercenary natures are often found where far better things might have been expected. If such girls as Miss Bentley could only be kept in quiet obscurity, like a bale of merchandise till wanted, it would not be so bad, but some of them are such brilliant belles and incorrigible coquettes that they are like certain Wall Street speculators who threaten to break the street in making their own fortunes. Some natures can receive a fair lady's refusal with a good-natured shrug as merely the result of a bad venture, and hope for better luck next time. 
but to a great number this is impossible, especially if they are played with and deceived. Walter Gregory preeminently belonged to the latter class. In early life he had breathed the very atmosphere of truth, and his tendency to sincerity ever remained the best element of his character. His was one of those fine-fibred natures most susceptible to injury. Up to this time his indiscretions had only been those of foolish, thoughtless youth, while aiming at the standard of manliness and style in vogue among his city companions. High-spirited young fellows, not early braced by principle, must pass through this phase as in babyhood they cut their teeth. If there is true metal in them, and they are not perverted by exceptionally bad influences, they outgrow the idea that to be fast and foolish is to be men, as naturally as they do their roundabouts. What a man does is often not so important as the state of the heart that prompts the act. In common parlance, Walter was as good-hearted a fellow as ever breathed. Indeed, he was really inclined to noble enthusiasms. If Miss Bentley had been what he imagined her, she might have led him swiftly and surely into true manhood, but she was only an adept at pretty seeming with him, and when Mr. Grob offered her his vast wealth, with himself as the only encumbrance, she acted promptly and characteristically. But perhaps it can be safely said that in no den of iniquity in the city could Walter Gregory have received such moral injury as poisoned his very soul when, in Mr. Bentley's elegant and respectable parlor, the angel he worshipped explained how she was situated, and, from a sense of duty, stated her purpose to yield to the wishes of her friends. Gregory had often seen Mr. Grob, but had given him no thought, supposing him some elderly relative of the family, that this was the accepted suitor of the girl who had, with tender meaning glances, sung for him sentimental ballads, who had sweetly talked to him of religion and mission work, seemed a monstrous perversion, call it unjust, unreasonable if you will. Yet it was the most natural thing in the world for one possessing his sensitive, intense nature to pass into harsh, bitter cynicism, and to regard Miss Bentley as a typical girl of the period. A young man is far on the road to evil when he loses faith in woman. During the formative period of character she is of earthly influences, the most potent in making or marring him. A kind refusal where no false encouragement has been given often does a man good and leaves his faith intact, but an experience similar to that of young Gregory is like putting into a fountain that which may stain and embitter the waters of the stream in all its length. At the early age of twenty-two he became what is usually understood by the phrase, a man of the world. Still his moral nature could not sink into the depths without many a bitter outcry against its wrongs. It was with no slight effort that he drowned the memory of his early home and its good influences. During the first two or three years he occasionally had periods of passionate remorse and made spasmodic efforts toward better things, but they were made in human strength, and in view of the penalties of evil rather than because he was enamored of the right. Some special temptation would soon sweep him away into the old life, and thus, because of his broken promises and repeated failures, he at last lost faith in himself also and lacked that self-respect without which no man can cope successfully with his evil nature and an evil world. Living in a boarding-house with none of the restraints and purifying influences of a good home, he formed intimacies with brilliant but unscrupulous young men. The theater became his church, and at last the code of his fast fashionable set was that which governed his life. He avoided gross, vulgar dissipation, both because his nature revolted at it and also on account of his purpose to permit nothing to interfere with his prospects of advancement in business. 
He meant to show Miss Bentley that she had made a bad business speculation after all. Thus ambition became the controlling element in his character, and he might have had a worse one. Moreover, in all his moral debasement he never lost a decided tendency toward truthfulness and honesty. He would have starved rather than touch anything that did not belong to him, nor would he allow himself to deceive in matters of business, and it was upon these points that he especially prided himself. Gregory's unusual business ability, coupled with his knowledge of French and German, led to his being sent abroad as agent of his firm. Five years of life in the materialistic and skeptical atmosphere of continental cities confirmed the evil tendencies which were only too well developed before he left his own land. He became what so many appear to be in our day, a practical materialist and atheist. Present life and surroundings, present profit and pleasure were all in all. He ceased to recognize the existence of a soul within himself having distinct needs and interests. His thoughts centered wholly in the comfort and pleasures of the day and in that which would advance his ambitious schemes. His skepticism was not intellectual and in reference to the Bible and its teachings, but practical and in reference to humanity itself. He believed that with few exceptions men and women lived for their own profit and pleasure, and that religion and creeds were matters of custom and fashion, or an accident of birth. Only the reverence in which religion had been held in his early home kept him from sharing fully in the contempt which the gentleman he met abroad seemed to have for it. He could not altogether despise his mother's faith, but he regarded her as a gentle enthusiast, haunted by sacred traditions. The companionships which he had formed led him to believe that unless influenced by some interested motive, a liberal-minded man of the world must of necessity outgrow these things. With the self-deception of his kind, he thought he was broad and liberal in his views, when in reality he had lost all distinction between truth and error, and was narrowing his mind down to things only. Jew or Gentile, Christian or pagan, it was becoming all one to him. Men changed their creeds and religions with other fashions, but all looked after what they believed to be the main chance, and he proposed to do the same. As time passed on, however, he began to admit to himself that it was strange that in making all things bend to his pleasure he did not secure more. He wearied of certain things. Stronger excitements were needed to spur his jaded senses. His bets, his stakes at cards grew heavier, his pleasures more gross, till a delicate organization so revolted at its wrongs and so chastised him for excess that he was deterred from self-gratification in that direction. Some men's bodies are a means of grace to them. Coarse dissipation is a physical impossibility, or swift suicide in a very painful form. Young Gregory found that only in the excitement of the mind could he hope to find continued enjoyment. His ambition to accumulate wealth and become a brilliant businessman most accorded with his tastes and training, and on these objects he gradually concentrated all his energies, seeking only in club rooms and places of fashionable resort recreation from the strain of business. He recognized that the best way to advance his own interests was to serve his employers well, and this he did so effectively that at last he was made a partner in the business, and, with a sense of something more like pleasure than he had known for a long time, returned to New York and entered upon his new duties. As we have said, among those who warmly greeted and congratulated him was Mr. Hunting. They gradually came to spend much time together, and business and money-getting were their favorite themes. Gregory saw that his friend was as keen on the track of fortune as himself, and that he had apparently been much more successful. Mr. Hunting intimated that after one reached the charmed inner circle, Wall Street was a perfect El Dorado, 
and seemed to take pains to drop occasional suggestions as to how an investment shrewdly made by one with his favorite point of observation often secured in a day a larger return than a year of plodding business these remarks were not lost on gregory and the wish became very strong that he might share in some of the splendid hits by which his friend was accumulating so rapidly usually mr hunting was very quiet and self-possessed but one evening in may he came into gregory's rooms in a manner indicating not a little excitement and elation gregory he exclaimed i am going to make my fortune make your fortune you are as rich as croesus now the past will be as nothing i've struck a mine rather than a vein it's a pity some of your friends could not share in your luck well a few can this is so large and such a good thing that i have concluded to let a few intimates go in with me only all must keep very quiet about it and he proposed an operation that seemed certain of success as he explained it gregory concluded to put into it nearly all he had independent of his investment in the firm and also obtained permission to interest his partners and to procure an interview between them and mr hunting the scheme looked so very plausible that they were drawn into it also but mr burnett took gregory aside and said after all we must place a great deal of confidence in mr hunting's word in this matter are you satisfied that we can safely do so i would stake my life on his word in this case said gregory eagerly and i pledge all i have put in the firm on this truth this was the last flicker of his old enthusiasm and trust in anybody or anything including himself with almost the skill of genius mr hunting adroitly within the limits of the law swindled them all and made a vast profit out of their losses the transaction was not generally known but even some of the hardened gamblers of the street said it was too bad but the bank officers with whom burnet and co did business knew about it and if it had not been for their lenience and aid the firm would have failed as it was it required a struggle of months to regain the solid ground of safety at first the firm was suspicious of gregory and disposed to blame him very much but when he proved to them that he had lost his private means by hunting's treachery and insisted on making over to them all his right and title to the property he had invested with them they saw that he was no confederate of the swindler but that he had suffered more than any of them he had indeed he had lost his ambition the large sum of money that was to be the basis of the immense fortune he had hoped to amass was gone he had greatly prided himself on his business ability but had signalized his entrance on his new and responsible position by being overreached and swindled in a transaction that had impoverished himself and almost ruined his partners he grew very misanthropic and was quite as bitter against himself as against others in his estimation people were either cloaking their evil or had not been tempted and he felt after hunting dropped the mask that he would never trust any one again it may be said all this is very unreasonable yes it is but then people will judge the world by their own experience of it and some natures are more easily warped by wrong than others no logic can cope with feeling and prejudice because of his own misguided life and the wrong he had received from others walter gregory was no more able to form a correct estimate of society than one color-blind is to judge of the tints of flowers and yet he belonged to that class who claimed pre-eminently to know the world because he thought he knew it so well he hated and despised it and himself as part of it the months that followed his great and sudden downfall dragged their slow length along he worked early and late without thought of sparing himself if he could only see what the firm had lost through him made good he did not care what became of himself why should he 
there was little in the present to interest him, and the future looked, in his depressed, morbid state, as monotonous and barren as the sands of a desert. Seemingly he had exhausted life, and it had lost all zest for him. But while his power to enjoy had gone, not so his power to suffer. His conscience was uneasy, and told him in a vague way that something was wrong. Reason, or more correctly speaking, instinct, condemned his life as a wretched blunder. He had lived for his own enjoyment, and now, when but half through life, what was there for him to enjoy? As in increasing weakness he dragged himself to the office on a sultry September day, the thought occurred to him that the end was nearer than he expected. "'Let it come,' he said bitterly. "'Why should I live?' The thought of his early home recurred to him with increasing frequency, and he had a growing desire to visit it before his strength failed utterly. Therefore it was with a certain melancholy pleasure that he found himself at liberty, through the kindness of his partners, to make this visit, and at the season, too, when his boyish memories of the place, like the foliage, would be most varied and vivid. End of chapter 1